This is part two of us examining the massacre, the shootings, the killings that occurred on the evenings of uh, March 14th and early morning March 15th in 1970 at then Jackson State College, now Jackson State University. Part one, we urge you to go check out, was, was with Dr. Nancy Bristow, who had a historical account of the events. And again, those events were the city of Jackson's police department and Mississippi Highway Patrol unleashed 400 rounds of ammunition, military-grade ammunition, with military-grade weapons into the women's dormitory, Alexander Hall, for nearly 30 seconds on the campus at Jackson State, killing two people. A 20-year-old pre-law student, Philip Lafayette Gibbs, was murdered that evening, along with a 17-year-old high school student who was just cutting through the campus on his way home from his after-school job. His name was James Earl Green. There were 12 other students who were wounded by gunfire. Numerous others had buckshots and and glass and, and the emotional trauma. We can't even account for that. But there were 12 others who were wounded by law enforcement's gunfire. And again, this is all unprovoked and without uh, any explanation, and no one has ever been held accountable for this, not criminally, nor uh, civilly, or financially, or any of that. It is truly a tragedy, and it's very much undercovered. Thankfully, one of the survivors of this shooting, Vernon Steve Weekly, joins us on the Parlay in All Blue, giving his account. He's also documented his account of the massacre that evening, and it's in a book, a memoir, Standing on the Edge of Madness. I urge you to find it on Amazon or Thrift Books are places where you can get it. I will say that we had some technical difficulties in this episode, but fortunately it is on my end. Uh, So much of this episode is just Mr. Weekly just telling his story And somehow I think that's the way it's supposed to be. And I want to thank Mr. Weekly for telling this story, because while this is is important history, and for me as a Jackson State graduate and a parent of a Jackson State student, it's important to me and it's important to me as as a black man. But for Mr. Weekly, he lived this. He was shot that evening. And it's a very traumatic event. So we thank him for sharing it. And also, we didn't do a lot of editing or even during the interview, cutting him off or anything because it is a very personal story. And this tragedy, I think, has to be put in the context of places like the massacres at Rosewood or Wilmington or Tulsa or Elaine, Arkansas, when black people are striving and when there's black joy and when black people are gaining rights, there's always a tremendous and violent backlash, either from vigilante groups or in this case, from state law enforcement. Anyway, I want to thank you all for joining us and continuing to support us at the parlay in all blue. Vernon Steve Weekly, welcome to the parlay in all blue. How are you, sir? 
I'm doing pretty good, doing well. And thank you for having me on this great podcast. It was a great show. Great show. Well, well, listen, I want to thank you for being on it. I wanted to talk about the shootings at Jackson State in May of 1970. I wanted to make sure that we had the right perspective on it. And um, you were someone who came up as I was querying uh, friends of the show in Jackson, uh, Dr. Ori, who's a professor at Jackson State, and Robert Rhymes and others, your name came back. And I know initially that you were reluctant to do it. And I'm glad you did do it. I will have to say that after reading your book, I understand that this is very personal for you. But I also know that your reluctance was not just necessarily about reliving the trauma of it, but you wanting it to be done in the right way. So I appreciate you. Yeah, I've said a lot of things, but a lot of people out there who are playing games. And I personally, and I hate to admit this, for years I participated until I figured it all out. I said, oh, man, what is going on here? These people are not interested in knowing the truth about what happened to Jack State. They're interested in playing games and creating uh, smoke and mirrors and confusion, which is always a bad thing when you're writing history. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going we gonna to get into it. But before we get to what happened on the campus there uh, in Jackson in in May of 1970, you grew up in Jackson. Talk to me about your family life and the neighborhood that you grew up in. Man, I grew up in downtown Jackson. 131 West Oakland Street, man. I was just with with I was just a razor thin kid, man, back in those days, naive to the world. My mom was a single parent. My dad died when I was very uh, young. And in that environment, man, I had my grandparents to have to step up and raise me and my brothers and sisters along with my mom. My mom was a seamstress. So we were very, very poor. But man, guess what? We did not do it until we were growing up people. And we looked back and we would laugh and joke about it. But we grew up downtown and I went to Leonard High School. Uh, my brothers, they went to Tougaloo. And I went to Jackson State on a band scholarship that got me there initially. Jackson at that time, man, was a thriving city. Uh, Just to give you an idea how close my proximity was to power at that time, we were about two or 300 yards away from, uh, I went to Smith Robinson Elementary School. For anybody know Jackson, it's right downtown. I mean, Smith Robinson is half the distance from my home to the Capitol building, which is about 100 yards from from uh, Smith Robinson Elementary School. But we grew up downtown. We saw this, these things going on downtown. Jackson, Mississippi at that time was a thriving city. Thriving, man. There was a lot of great things going on. Mississippi Sovereignty Commission was going on then. It took me 20 years to find out about that. If you have any idea about that, the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission was a super secret organization that was used to keep black people down. But the Jackson Citizen Council was one of the things that was in effect. I grew up in an era right down the street from the church where Martin Luther King and all of these great uh, civil rights icons marched. I was a small, small kid when all that stuff was occurring. Uh, but Jackson at that time was a, was a good city. And like I said, my parents sheltered me and my brothers and my sister 
from all of the things that was going on. Well, we grew up downtown Jackson, and you had all types of stuff going on. And like I said, our parents, grandparents, my mom did a great job of sheltering us and making certain that that stuff didn't impact on us and cause us to not grow up to be the great individuals that they wanted us to be. At least they have a shot at getting out of the uh, that atmosphere. And just a few more thoughts, words I want to throw out there regarding this stigma about the ghetto. You hear people talking about the ghetto, and when you hear it, it makes you wonder, man, must be a lot of bad things going on in the ghetto. But I grew up in the ghetto, man, Jackson downtown. It's a lot of great people there. And as in my travels over the year, I'm 72 years old. I've done a lot of traveling. And in my travels, man, I went to a lot of these so-called ghettos. And guess what? It's a lot of great, 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 great people in those places. That 98% of good people and the 2% of bad people often I give them the ghetto a bad name or the bad black community, let's say, a bad name. But there's a lot of great things that happen and a lot of great role models, was the preachers, the neighbors, hardworking people. They would get up every morning and go to work, man, with the rain or shine. Uh, most didn't have cars, so they would have to walk way across town to work. But in any case, just wanted to throw that out there. That was my neighborhood. That's where I grew up, downtown Jackson. Yeah. Thank you for that. And there's a, a, a couple of things that I want to say is I'm glad you said that about the perception of the, the ghetto and I think that can be said for a time and period in America across the board that people were poor, but that didn't mean that they were poor in spirit, poor in aspiration, poor in morals or any of those. Things. And, and there's, there's a difference that I think people don't get. So I'm glad you said that. You grew up near the capital, capital and you touched on the Mississippi Sovereignty Committee and the Citizens Council. Did you, as a kid growing up that close to the Capitol, did you all ever see any of those people, the lawmakers, governor, and those people in the neighborhoods? Yeah, this is kind of odd that you mentioned this, but I'm going to tell you. Like I said, we were right there by Ferris Street, where all the action was. As a small kid, I would see RVs, large RVs full of white congressmen riding up and down Ferris Street getting the prostitutes and pulling them in, into these RVs or just riding through the neighborhoods doing all type of silly stuff. But I saw a lot. We saw a lot. But again, I, one of the points I want to make is that our parents just never used that as an excuse. They would always say, hey, you know, Vernon, you got good, you got evil in this world. And those people that you see in there are doing bad. But that doesn't mean that all white people are bad, all people, congressmen are bad, which were, at that time, they were all white at that time. So, yeah, we had a lot of interaction being that close to them downtown. Plus, I was a grocery boy <laughs> downtown on uh, uh, Ferris Street, and you saw a lot. So you had two brothers. Your older two brothers went to Tougaloo, and I want to say your younger sister went to Ole Miss. Why did you not choose Tougaloo? Well, I tell you, I would go out there and visit with them all the time. So I was pretty uh, familiar with Tougaloo. I liked it too, by the way. But once I started going to band camp at Jackson State University, I made a very clear comparison. It was much bigger. It was just much more stuff going on. 
And to me, it was just a lot of fun. I messed around and saw those Omegas, the members of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity during that time. I said, golly, man, what is this fraternity like? And it just seemed to be just more. Don't get me wrong. Tupelo is a great college. Great, great, great school, great institution. But man, as a young kid coming out of high school, looking to make that choice, I chose Jackson State. And I'll also say this. I had scholarships, music scholarships to Southern University, Grambling University, a lot of the bigger schools. But again, I chose to go to Jackson State because of the uh, intellectual uh, growth that was going on there. And just so many things was going on. Jackson at that time that was flowing into uh, Jackson State University. Yeah. So what what year did you enter Jackson State? I I went into Jackson State in 1968. Okay. Yeah. No. Me. Me too. As a freshman, went over Mega Sci-Fi Fraternity in '69. Okay. Yeah. So you're about to tell your age there, Mark. <laughs> if you went there around the time that I did. No, no, no. I didn't go with you. No, listen, I went 84. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 68 for me, man. Yeah, we know some of this uh, clearly. So for the listeners, I am an Omega and Brother Weekly is an Omega. And so to to let people in on the secret cut to the chase, we do have that in common. And so we're going to get to a lot of that because we know, well, we're far apart, but we overlap because you know how... The cues operate. Well, the alternatives out there for black men, the negative alternatives, all the fraternities, all the sororities are great. Well, the ladies out there as well, all the fraternities are great. We don't knock them down because when you're the best, you don't have to worry about the rest. That's one of our models. And you know it well, I'm sure. But in any case, yeah, we are mega men. Yeah. So you came in 68 and I want to say Dr. Peoples had just started maybe in 67. And talk to me about the sort of mood of the campus in terms of whether it's politics or, you know, Vietnam War or those kinds of things, and especially in contrast to what was happening at Tougaloo. Well, let me tell you, Tougaloo is a lot more in tune to... uh the war, anti-war effort, that type of stuff. Whereas Jackson State, this is going to sound like a slap in the face, but later on it got better. When I was there, the kids, man, were interested in three things, partying, getting their lesson, and uh, graduating. Simple as that. Getting their lesson, graduating, and partying. But as far as uh, politics of it all, now. We were having a great time. We were partying. And that's one of the uh, things that the white powers that be in Mississippi got wrong. Just because Jackson was growing, Jackson, Mississippi was growing, and Jackson State was growing by leaps and bounds in those days, they thought that that was a threat to them. Man, these kids getting an education, surely they're going to now be aware of the power of the vote. And in, in my opinion, that was one of the reasons that they chose to do what they did at Jackson State. They saw us as a threat. The truth of the matter is that we were not interested in those type of things at all. My freshman year, right before the shooting at Jackson State, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Kent State in Ohio happened 10 days 
before the shooting at Jackson State. I remember some kids from Tougaloo coming over to hold a rally about the shooting at Ohio State. And it was about three or four, five, six, seven, eight people out there. No one was out there because, like I said, we just were not that in tune to uh, what was going on across the nation. By the way, you young men compared to me, but at that time, all across the nation, at all of the big white schools, man, they had all the type of anti-war demonstrations going on. All across the nation, it was a big, big, big deal. Big deal. Big deal. I mean, white kids were marching, man. It was just, it was just a big, big deal across the nation. The anti-war movement, movement particularly by that was supported by uh, young, rich, white kids at these big schools, but not so much at the smaller schools, uh, black schools. Yeah, um, I'm glad you said that. And I want to just give uh, our listeners just a little contrast in terms of why that is. I think one thing that people have to understand that from the black colleges and when you look at students involved in civil rights and anti-war, you're going to see Fisk, you're going to see Tougaloo, you're going to see Howard. Um, Those are private schools. And meaning their funding was coming from a different place. State schools like Jackson State, Alcorn, Alabama A&M, others were were and are publicly funded. And the state legislatures, what what you refer to in your uh, book, the white powers that be, the Citizens Council, the Sovereignty Commission in uh, Mississippi were very acute and very punitive to students protesting during, uh, before Dr. Peoples, when uh, Dr. Riddix was the um, president, you could be expelled for participating in political activity at Jackson State. And Jackson State, then and now, still has a number of people who were the first first person in their family to go to college. So it's just a different mindset. And I've and and preparing for this episode, I came across where an Alcorn in 1968, February of 1968, three students were uh expelled for political activity. And that political activity was passing out campaign flyers for Charles Evers. So I think people have to understand that the time was a complex time and that everybody was going through it in their own way. So I want to thank you for for sharing that. Let me also add, Mark, if you allow me to, Dr. People. Dr. People was like a uh, breath of fresh air when he took over Jackson State College. What a role model. What a great guy. What a visionary. Man, that guy would walk through the campus, and he would just, people would just, Flock to him like, like, uh, I don't even know what to, what uh, analogy to use, but that guy was such a great guy. He had so many great things that he accomplished at Jackson State. And that in itself, if you think about it, yeah. was a threat to the white powers that be. They just, you know, you take a, a black man and bring him over from Africa and say, man, they're not going to do anything because we have taken the education away from them. We've taken their, uh, history away from them. we've done all these things to shackle them, to keep them from being able to enter into the race and do well. And all of a sudden, we do well. And that was one of the things that threatened them as well, that they could 
give us a low budget, not uh, support us, be punitive in their actions towards us, have uh, such a powerful force as the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission doing all types of things in our communities to keep upward progress from being made. Uh, the Jackson Citizens Council, man, if you sat in their uh, the stores around that time, you could get in trouble. You could get arrested. You know, they did a lot of things that uh, helped stop progress of black people in their time. But yet, and in my opinion, that's one of the reasons that the shooting in Jackson State occurred. Black people are just getting too powerful. Anytime you bring kids out the country, man, who would normally be working the fields for their families, but rather than do that, they're now being sent to Jack State to get educated. With that, of course, is going to come the power of the vote. And again, another reason why the powers that be in Mississippi would uh, have a problem with Jackson State. Jackson State at that time, when it first started, was a small school. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. And I agree 100% with all of that. It is this killing at Jackson State is as much about anything. Jackson State represented to me at that point, looking back on it now, a threat because people are going to be doing well. This is about self-empowerment and this and people, the white powers that be, the Citizens Council, the Sovereignty Commission, the media, and we're going to get into some of that too, because I looked at the uh, Clarion Ledger reporting, and it might as well have been written by the Ku Klux Klan themselves. I mean, it was it was atrocious. But I do want to to talk a little bit about because I think it's important. We hear about these things historically, but talk me through what you were doing on the night of May fourteenth there at Jackson State in May 14th, 1970, and uh, the troopers coming onto the campus and, and the shooting itself. And and I know you you lived it, and, and, and some of this is hard, but if you could talk us through it so we get a sense of what, the, what, what, what happened. The night that the shooting occurred, Mark, there was nothing going on in Jackson State. It was just a regular night on what we kids call the yard. People were outside. Music was playing. Back in those days, the number one thing for guys to do would be was to hang out at the girls' door. And girls and the guys would hang out and party, have music and that kind of stuff going on. But it was a quiet night. And so that quietness was disturbed by this white guy coming down Lynn Street, screaming the N-word and other profanities out at the kids on campus. And like I said, at that time, Jackson State was a uh, thoroughfare. Lynch Street came down the middle of the campus. So on either side of that campus, just for me to paint a picture for you, on the end of the campus that I was in by Alexander Hall, there was a uh, cafeteria was on the right side of the street. On the left side of the street was Alexander uh, Hall, and if you will, kind of envision an open-ended box. Open-ended box. I'm sure you remember, I'm sure you were there a lot during those days. And the street is out here, cafeteria is over here, and the girls' dorm was like a block, an uh, open-ended block. And 
a lot of the students would just hang out in that center area there where I was. And this area here would be envision that, visualize that as where the West Wing was, the door to get in. You had a little gate there in front of it. Then you had a gate on this side, but you had the West Wing where you could go up the stairs to get into the dorm area. Same thing on this side. And we were all here, the Q's and the Deltas hanging out, having fun, just having a great time like we did nightly. And let me say this, that's where the lovers were <laughs> down at the girls' dorm. But you had the guys at the other end of the dorm, Stuart Hall down there at the other end, man, where they were, you know, upset maybe because they couldn't be down with girls. They didn't have any girlfriends or whatever. But in any case, we were partying. We were having a great time. It was a nice, quiet night, a peaceful night. And then all of a sudden, like I said, we looked up, and this white guy's coming in a truck, pickup truck. He's screaming. He's hollering, niggas, hey, you, you know, dirty niggas, blah, 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 blah. I don't think anybody had done anything to that guy, Mike, but for whatever reason, he had chosen to uh, come in on the wrong side of that campus. <laughs> he came in on the quiet side. We saw him, but we didn't do anything. It happened so fast that we just didn't react. We just all kind of looked at what's going on. But guess what? He was heading towards where the men dorm was. And guess what? Those guys down there had just enough time to hear him screaming at, at us on this end. So they started, I can just guess what happened, man. They started throwing rocks at the guy and this type of stuff and, and screaming, hollering at him back. And guess what? He got off campus and called the police. And now I don't know whether that was, to me, I think it was a plot. I think he was a plant. He was just a guy sitting there to do that because at any campus, in America, you know, you just anyone coming through your campus, you're gonna you're gonna react to it. So in any case, what had happened then was about 20, 30 minutes later, from the boys' dorm in, we could see the Mississippi Highway Patrol and the Jackson Police marching towards the men's dorm. We're all looking, trying to figure out what's going on, and this is the odd thing: the men at the dorm. Were throwing rocks at them and screaming and hollering at them. But the guys, the policemen and the highway patrolmen just kept marching straight. They had the guns pointed straight. And it was as if they were told to ignore the male students. If you remember, Stuart Hall was on this side. So they're coming down, Mark. And like I said, the men's students were challenging them, screaming, get off our campus. Get off. What are you doing here? That type of stuff. And, of course, they were behind the fences. And, again, Lynch Street was in the middle, fence on either side where Jack State campus was. And so they came down, marched past the men, and came down towards us. And we were like, what are they coming to see us for? What are they, why are they coming down here? There was nothing going on where we were, but, but it was more students there, of course. But they came down. They got right in front of that box. Remember I told you about the open-ended box. Now, this is the miracle of Jackson State. I don't know if you ever knew Dr. Gene Young, but Dr. Gene Young is one of the reasons I was inspired to write my book, Standing at the Edge of Madness, because he had a book he never wrote, and it was going to be the miracle of Jackson State. The miracle of Jackson State that he would always tell people about was more people didn't get killed 
with the number of bullets that were shot that night. The police stopped right about here, right at that fence where West Wing was. And if they came right to the center, out to the center out here, and started shooting the bullets directly going into that building, man, a lot more people would got killed. But they stopped right over here, right at that angle. And a lot of those bullets, the bulk of those bullets hit that West Wing tower, stairwell tower. So a lot of people would have gotten killed, but they came down, down the bullhorn, looked like a white police officer, started to talk on the bullhorn, telling us to get back into the building. Get back in the building. What are you doing out here? Get out. Get back. Audience, state of Mississippi, this and that. And, of course, we did. We were hollering back at them. What are you doing on our campus? Y'all get off. Uh, we're on campus. Why are y'all bothering us? And, again, they were still in the middle of the street. But by that time, they had kind of turned and wheeled towards us. They all were looking towards the girls doing But remember now, the cafeteria was behind them. It was a little elevated. So there was a fence there where the cafeteria was, area was, elevated behind them. So I guess they didn't see the need to turn that way, but they all turned our way. So all of a sudden, a bottle come up in the air, spread up in the air, man, like, like it hung in the air for a few minutes. That bottle came down, Mark, and hit right in the middle of their formation. That'd be about, I'm going to say about 80 of them, 70, 80, something like that. And later on, I found I was half Iowa Patrol, half police. The police was supposed to be in the in charge. But when that bottle hit, it's as if they all went crazy. Man, just start shooting, 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 shooting. I didn't get very far. Like I said, I was kind of like here, right here, right at that gate, right inside the gate. I got hit and knocked down immediately. I got hit in my leg, shot in the leg. And I could just see the students trying to get in that stairwell to get back inside the uh, building. Man, it was like for a few seconds there, they all got stuck. So many people trying to get in one time. Glass had broke. The metal uh, from the doors were broke. The glass was uh, everywhere, people were getting cut. They were being shot in the back by the police. It was a shotgun blast. I'm told that the shooting went 28 seconds, Mark, but I'm going to tell you, man, it seemed like it went a lot longer. And I'm sure in my fright mind, it just appeared that way, but the shooting went on for 28 seconds. And I don't know if you know if you ever shot a gun or anything like that, but just to stand and shoot 28 seconds with a gun, that's a lot of bullets. And from all those guys out there shooting, Man, it was incredible. The night lit up like daytime. Sparks was coming out of that gun. Smoke was coming out of that gun. I got knocked down immediately. At that point time, right before shooting started, I was standing with Ruby Patrick, who's a Delta, still an old friend of mine to this very day. Johnny B.B. Bird from Chicago, one of the coolest frats on the campus. <laughs> Robert Grant. Uh, Robert B.B. Bird is deceased now. But Robert Grant, ROTC guy, went on to be a, like a real high up officer in the, in the army, was in a big ROTC guy. He was standing there. And then Dolomite. Dolomite was my line brother. His name was Howard Levite. We called him Dolomite because he was a player, man. I don't know if you're familiar with 
Dolores Moore, but everybody knew Dolores. And that's why they called him Dolores. That was his nickname. And so we all were standing there when the shooting started. But guess what? They were able to get inside the building. But I did. I got hit, violently knocked down. The glass, the smoke, buckshot pellets was hitting me in my backside. I could tell I had been shot. Uh, the sight that I was seeing with the students, Mark, was incredible, man. They were screaming, hollering, and everything. Then all of a sudden, everything stopped. Eerie silence. Then all of a sudden, boom, it started back up again. The the screams was deafening, man. I mean, the, the Reddit girls doing, people, man, were just going crazy. In my area, I was, uh, uh, I just five, six feet from uh, one of the students. I probably start right here. I'm getting a little emotional. Who got shot in the head. And there was other students around who had got shot too. And I remember the Highway Patrol, uh, guy by the name, his real name is Lloyd Jones. If you read my book, I think I have missed, I used another name. He's dead now, but at the time I was writing the book, he wasn't dead. I, I used another name in the book. Real name was Lloyd Jones. He's a big, bad Highway Patrolman, man. That guy came up and, uh, he was just screaming, niggas, you know, yo, Shut up, you know, and get down on the ground. This type of stuff. And I remember looking towards the stairwell and seeing no one was moving at that time. The students, everybody was frightened. They were scared. So many people laying out on the ground. A lot of them was bleeding, uh, whatever. And I remember looking in the stairwell and seeing Dolomite peering out <laughs> from behind the stairwell. And to this very day, man, I've, I've never, uh, he was the first person to get up. And start walking towards the police. At one point, one of the highway patrols said, "Nigga, stay down. Get back down, nigga. Get back down." And he said, "My my frat brother's out. He's shot. I'm trying to get to him. All I want to do is get to him and help him." And I remember thinking, "God, dog, they're gonna shoot this guy. They're gonna shoot Dolomite. They're gonna shoot him." I'm trying to. I'm laying on the ground, telling him, "Stay back, stay back." But Dolomite, he comes out anyway. And he makes his way over to me, and they still, nigga, get down. We told you not to move. We told you not to move. And he comes over. He picks me up. He tries to pick me up. Lord Jones come over, who I found out later. We did the court trial. I found out who all these guys was later. Lord Jones grabbed me by my arm and threw me back down to both of us, really, back to the ground. Nigga, didn't I tell you to stay down here shotgun drunk? And, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I remember two or three other officers walking over to him, Howard Patrolman. Look like they had just taken control. I didn't even see the city police up there at that time. They were just standing out there in the street, marveling at the damage they had done to us as if said, golly, what's going on? And, and let me say this before, before I go too far. All right. One point when I was laying down, again, my back was, my head was away from them facing the girls doing stairwell, West Wing. And they were behind me. So my feet was towards them, towards the opening in that gate. And I remember one point during the shooting, looking back, turning sideways and looking back. Cause I could feel, I thought they were shooting at me, really. Cause I could feel some of the stuff, metal bouncing back, the shotgun pellets and stuff like that hitting me. 
So I, I tried to look back and man, they look like demons out there. They were holding on to the guns as if they were afraid the guns were going to jump out of their hands. Their eyes were buffed. The smoke from those guns was swirling towards the kids from towards us. The uh, sparks and the fire, and like I said, lit up like daytime. But once all of that occurred, going back to the point where Dolomite picked me up, another patrolman walked over and told a guy, leave those niggas alone there. There's some niggas over here that are dead. And so he quickly went on to go over where they were and I can't even begin to tell you what I saw. Man, they were standing and looking, but nobody one was trying to help. The student had been shot in the head, and he was laying there, bleeding to death. He was either dead or dying. One or two other students were around him trying to help him, render aid to him. Uh, Philip Gibbs, I didn't want to call his name. I remember putting that in, in his book, and I did a program with uh, his mom about three years ago and she was there and I realized causing his, calling his name was just causing her some, you know, telling the story that I always said, man, if I was ever in this situation, maybe I shouldn't call the dying student's name. But, but in any case, students were trying to work on him. The highway patrol wasn't trying to help. It was two of them standing there. Then all of a sudden, we hear they had told Dolomite and me to stay down. We were laying on the ground at that point. He had pulled us down to the ground, told us, niggas, no, don't you move, niggas. And all of a sudden, we hear, you better not run, nigga. Halt, nigga, halt. Move. Shotgun blast. They had shot at somebody on the side of the West Wing going towards the old student union building. And it was on the uh, is on the east side, but at that time in the old days when you were there, the student union was a little farther down. So they shot at somebody to kind of draw all of their attention towards that area. So me and Dolomite, he was able to pick me up because I'm bleeding. I'm half dragging myself. He's pulling me. We were able to make ourselves inside that building, inside the West Wing. Mark, I'll live another hundred years and I'll never experience what I experienced. Blood on the walls, cut glass, students. Man, this was a girl's dorm. Girls were going crazy, man, screaming. That hallway was shaking like a railroad train or something. A freight train was running through from the vibrations and the, and the uh, 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 sheer energy that was being re released by the students. Man, screaming, hollering, jumping, bouncing, man. It, it was just an incredible, incredible sound, man. Blood was on the ceilings. I remember one time Dolomite had picked me up and he had, was carrying me and I'm carrying myself trying to get where I was going. We slipped one time in the blood. It was just so much blood on the floor. We slipped in the blood. Blood on the ceilings from, I guess, people running and being cut by glass trying to get in the door and, and from buckshot uh, from their wounds. They were slinging blood. Blood was everywhere, dripping from the ceiling. And so we're trying to get inside. Dolomite virtually carrying me at that point. Then Grant comes up, who's Fred brother. Once we got inside of the 
uh, stairwell, then started heading to, down the quarters. We saw a grant, a couple of the frats. So we go down, and again, I can't even describe to you the terror and the panic that was going on in that dormitory with all those girls and then and guys too. A lot of men had ran in there too. And I remember them taking me to uh, Ruby Patrick's room. Walked in the room, Ruby exploded because she had heard that I had been killed. And she came up, she was examining me and just screaming and crying. And uh, so we we didn't know what to think. man. We, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if the shooting was going to continue, if they were going to come in and drag us out and shoot us down like dogs. We didn't know. We felt like rats in a trap, to be honest with you. Nowhere to go. They had us. Had the foot on our neck. They had us. Again, hysteria like you wouldn't believe in that dormitory. Then all of a sudden, I guess we were in there about 10 minutes. I'm bleeding. Brent, who's an ROTC guy, has got a tourniquet on my leg. He's like, Swellos, Swellos, man, you have got to go get some. I got shot right below my knee in the back of my leg, but in the fleshy part of my leg. The bullet went, hit the back, came through the front, but it didn't hit a bone. But I'm bleeding real bad. And uh, I'm cold, I'm shivering. And I remember uh, hearing the sound. Everybody was like, what is that? We slowly creeped up to the window and looked out of the door, looked towards the street. Who was the National Guard? Man, their feet pounding in rhythm, in formation, heading towards the dorm, just standing there with the feet. It was like an eerie sound that was just just an eerie sound. I mean, we didn't know what was that. They had the guns pointing at the girls' dorm. We just didn't know what was going to happen. We, we, you know, kids from that erupted even more so because, like I said, they had the guns pointing. We didn't know what was that. We didn't see the Highway Patrol at that point. We were looking out of the window, but we didn't see the National Guard. And uh, some guy on a bullhorn kept uh, screaming, everybody who's wounded, come out of the building. Come out the building now. Come out the building now. Then all of a sudden, you start hearing this wailing. The ambulances, the ambulances, man, were wailing like wild dogs. And that was a whole nother scariness that was going on because we didn't know what that was other than the fact that we knew it was uh, uh, ambulances, but they were out there and they were screaming. The people in the building were still kind of somewhat calmed down, but they were still in a great, great panic. I remember one point almost getting into a fight with Grant because and Dolomite because they wanted me to go out to go get attention. I'm like, man, I'm not going down there. You know, I'm not going, they're going to kill us, man. Why would I go down there and put myself in their hands again? And that, while it convinced me to go down to get get uh, attended to. So I get down there, and there was a, uh ambulance there. The guy was trying to put me in the ambulance, but it was just so much stuff going on. It was just so much panic. I mean, I can't even describe to you how these girls were screaming and hollering and people were 
I remember one point this attendant, uh, one of the National Guard guys had walked over there to the ambulance with me. And he kept saying, you need to get in that ambulance. You need to get in that ambulance because you bleed real, real bad. And so him, some of my frat brothers, Dolomite, Grant, some of my other frat brothers helped put in that National Guardman. There wasn't no black National Guardman out there. <laughs> it was all white. <laughs> Maybe it was something. None that I saw, the 99% I saw were all white. But so they put me in the ambulance and it was packed. It had to be like five. You know, ambulance is not built to carry no more than a couple of people. If that, then you got your attendance in there. But they put four or five of us in there. Everybody screamed and hollering. And I'll never will forget this. Student name was Gloria Mayhorn. She came out. They had me in the ambulance. They said, wait, 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 we got one more, we got one more. Her hair, she had a lot of hair, but her hair was just full of blood, full of blood. She had been hit apparently by a shot, buckshot or something. And she was bleeding real bad. She was screaming and hollering and thrashing about. And put her in there, put her in there. And they put her in there on top of me, Mark. I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. I was going into shock, man. I was going into shock because I just, she was screaming. I'm already scared. I'm bleeding. My blood supply had tapped way down. And I just kept fighting to get out the ambulance. And the, the ambulance driver kept saying, you need to stay your butt in this ambulance. You need to stay your butt in this ambulance. I'm getting, I said, no, no, give her my seat. Give her my seat. I just can't stand it. I just can't. He said, if you don't get one of these ambulances, you're going to die. Her wound looks bad, but that's buckshot. You've been shot, and you've been bleeding for a while. It's obvious you, 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 you're about to die from loss, loss of blood. So I get out the ambulance like a fool, and the frats were fighting and arguing with me, trying to make me get back in. Another one that was pulling up, but I refused to do it until they kind of picked me up and carried me away. Man. And so the fresh ambulance is just opening up. The guy was saying, get on in here. Next thing I know, I get a pat on my back. It's my brother, my brother Stanley. And he says, mom sent me out here to get you. We understand you've been shot. They told you you had been to the, to the, uh, to the, uh, to the hospital at the, you were at the hospital. So the guy at that ambulance kept trying, tenders, kept trying to get me in the answer. Uh, my leg has stopped bleeding now. I think I'm going to be okay. I think I'm going to be okay. And he pulled my pants up and said, man, this guy's bullshitting you. You need to get him. Tell my brother and the frat, y'all need to get him. Because he's going to die. He's got a loss of bed. But I said, no, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm going to be all right. I was just so scared to give my life over. A lot of people, I've told this over the years, don't understand. But I just couldn't see me giving my life over to the same people who had just tried to kill us. You know, at the hospital or wherever. I just couldn't. I didn't know where they were taking me. They could have took me around the corner and finished the job, but I just couldn't do it. And my brother is a great guy. One of the soft-hearted guy, great guy. I was able to talk him into putting me in the car. He said, well, mom is, uh, is, is in the car. He had to park like a couple of blocks over. 
And we're going to get him to the hospital and take him to the hospital. And so I kind of conned him a little bit. But I probably should have got in went on to the to the hospital. So, But I did. I got in the car with him. And somewhere between <laughs> going to the hospital, I talked to him. Again, my mother wasn't in the car at that time. She was at the house waiting on my butt. And that's a whole other story, chapter in the book. Uh, it told me not to go out to the campus that night. I wasn't supposed to be out there. So he gets me and we, he takes me home. Now, I didn't find this out till years later, but my brother went through hell that night himself. Before coming to the campus, my, I had a girlfriend named Ernestine Alpha called my family and let them know that I had been shot. And she heard that I was being taken to the hospital. So, my brother first went to the hospital and he had his own personal nightmare that night. I didn't find this out to many, many years later until he told me the story. And it's in the book, by the way. But he said he went in the hospital and he kept asking people if they knew where he looked at lists that had my names on it. Went looking through and through and they said, well, guess what? He may not be on this list, but there's some people down at the mall from Jackson State you know, hopefully he's not there, but he, he may be there. He need to go there. So Stan took off running to the mall. This this story. He gets there and they had these sheets with bodies covered up, green gifts covered up, and other bodies. I don't know whether it's playing a prank on my brother, or whatever. But he said, "Man, they was taking me to these people," and he said the first one they took me to was shot in the head. And he said, for a few minutes there, I thought it was you. I thought it was you. I thought it was you. I started crying. I started throwing up. And and I stepped back. When I turned, for whatever reason, he said, unfamiliar features on that face started to show through, shine, shine through. And from there, he was able to determine what me. But he turned and took off running, got in the car and headed on out to the campus. And that's where that tap on the shoulder came from him, him uh, touching my shoulder, getting me in the car. But man, getting home, woo-wee, my mom didn't play. Lola May Weekly did not play, Mark. I had told her I was not going out there that night because she had heard that that could be trouble. Uh, because they, the rumor was out that there were some kids who tried to burn down the uh, ROTC mill a couple of nights before, night before, and I didn't know nothing about that. But in any case, she didn't want me to go out there. I was at the post office. I worked at the post office at the time. And I had gotten off her brother come home, <laughs> right out to the campus, and uh, I knew I was in trouble. Man, I knew I was in trouble. But rather than get on me like I thought she was going to do, my mom showed me love, man. She just petted me up. She called a doc, Dr. Britton. Dr. Britton said, go look at his leg, Lola. Do this, do that. Pull up his pants. Do this, do that. Is it bleeding? Is it soft? Is it bruised? What, you know, is it a hole in the front? Is it a hole in the back? And she went through all these different scenarios with him. And he determined, because I kept telling him, man, I just, my nerves are shot. I'm about to go crazy. My nerves are shot. And they allowed me not to go to the to the hospital. So, well, tell you what, Dr. Briggs' office right around another 
at the top of the corner from my house, Oakland Street, his office. And he said, well, bring him. I'm going to be there early. You bring him to see me early alone. And I decided nervous again. And then I would find a way to calm down and like a roller coaster ride that whole night. The next morning, my mom took me to see Dr. Britt. You may not be aware of Dr. Britt, but man, long time doctor, one of my role models. And he was just so disappointed in me when I walked in there. Fern, what are you doing, son? You can't, you young kids, y'all can't throw. He had been a civil rights icon himself in Jackson. Can't throw yourselves at bullets like that. I'm like, Doc, I was just out there having fun. I'm not throwing. We were not fighting these people. We were not putting ourselves in a provocative way with these people. We were just out there having fun. And, uh, and, uh, but he gave me this long lecture. It's in my book. Man, every time I go over, it makes me cry. I'm trying not to cry. But he basically said, blacks have got to get in the system and work within the system. You know, the system is just so big and so gigantic and powerful. You just can't stand outside and try to punch you. Just, you got to weave your way into the system. Probably one of the reasons why I went on to work with Internal Revenue Service for many, many, many years. Worked my way up. As a manager, was a manager there, well, highly decorated manager there for many years. But that was one of the reasons. But the, uh, so he let me go, get home, sit there, tell my mom, talk to my mom, big bang on the door. Boom, 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 boom. It's the FBI. We need to see Vernon Steve Weekly open this door. What do you want? Vern Steve Wiggins said, what, who's the FBI? What do you want up in here? I'm Lola May Weekly. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there like, oh, man, these guys, that'll take some of the heat off me. Because then at that point, I was catching a lot of heat then at that point for being after that night. So they came in right off the bat. Weekly, we know you were the sniper out there that night. <laughs> I bust out laughing. Son, what's so funny? My mom got hot. Sniper? I said, man, you know why I'm laughing? Because I was right up at the front with a lot of other people. And you tell me that you're accusing me of being a sniper. I got a hundred witnesses out there that saw me that night would say different. And I remember saying, uh, saying, uh, uh, he said, well, if he wasn't a sniper to a well-dressed white man, if he wasn't a sniper, damn it, he'd want to know who that damn sniper was right now. I said, man, well, no sniper out, out there at Jackson State. And y'all know it. Because if there was a sniper out there, he'd be downtown dead right now today or shot up in the news today because they just wouldn't allow him to be roaming free today that you could be knocking on people's door looking for him. For a sniper. And they kept pushing it though. And after a while they gave up. So okay, we we, we need your pants. They took my pants, which was all chewed up with buckshot. And uh that that I had on that night. Next thing I know, our frat brothers are banging on the door. Boom, 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 boom. Miss Wiggle, Miss Wiggle, we just came to see how uh Swalos, that was my nickname for those who don't know me. Bop Swalos was my nickname of the day. 
And she let him in. She was a little upset with him too, but she let him in. And um, I got, she gave me, well, I got my granddaddy's cane. And he didn't want me to leave. I wanted to go to the event because I wanted to speak and tell people what had happened. And uh, eventually I was able to get her to allow me to leave. And we went to the thing. And I didn't get a chance to speak. I was in the line, boy, up there. I was ready to go. And I got a picture, Mark. I got to show you that picture. Send it to you of me uh, testifying that day. Somebody found it. Constant Slaughter. She was one of the lawyers that worked with us. Found that picture. And and they uh, sent it to me. And I got to send it to you. But in any case, we went out there. I didn't get a chance to speak. But this guy by the name of Antoine did a great job of... Uh, Tell them what happened out there that night. From there, I was all working the post office. Again, I can get the whole story and get the whole book. But what was sad was after leaving that meeting at the Masonic Temple, I went to Jackson State campus. And, you know, I, I thought there was going to be a lot of people protesting, hundreds of people out there, thousands of people. But nothing. It was just a lot of fright, frightened people, parents rushing in the dorm, quickly grabbing their kids' stuff, hauling it out. The campus was dead. There was nothing going on. And I was a little sad. I was just so sad that the white powers that be had won with one giant blow. One with one blow, man, they just silence not only Jack State, but all of the black people in Mississippi. People were scared to death. I mean, it was just something that I'll never forget, along with all these other different milestones uh, after the shooting of Jack State, how we were just frightened and scared, and I guess for good reason. If, if people would send all men up there with machine guns, rifles, shotguns, a, 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 a tank, you know, later on, it will set us back years. But again, now, Jack State has now rebounded by leaps and bounds, and which is a great thing, which is a great thing. But that's, that's where we are, man. I tell you, I went back to the post office about three or four weeks later. Dr. Britton wanted me to stay out long, longer, but I just couldn't do it. Uh, I had to do something. I was going crazy in my house. Everybody was gone. They had ran everybody off campus with nothing going on. My frat brothers were gone. But that's where we were. No one was on campus. I didn't have where to go. So I went back to work. And lo and behold, the white powers that be followed me there. On the, the weekends, I was the guy who would walk over to the governor's mansion to pick up the mail. There was a mailbox right on the side of the governor's mansion. And the post office that I worked at at that time was downtown Jackson. And right across from the governor's mansion, if you ever been downtown, I had a lot of good friends. Some of it was Rivy. Some of it was people feeling sorry for what had happened. I'm talking about the white people now. But I want patrolmen out there. It's okay. Let me avoid this trouble. And I'm really traumatized about this shooting at Jackson State. But I forced myself to say, okay, this is just, maybe I'm just imagining this. So when I turn around, the other guy had walked up, and he's laughing. 
And the guy who is blocked my way, and he stands there and he's got his hands on his gun and another hand on his hip. And he says, okay, nigga, what you going to do? So I stopped. Instead of going around this time, it was like all of the rage and anger that I had held up in me about shooting the Jack State is bubbled to the surface. Looking at him, he's looking at me. I'm looking at him dead in his eye. I move right up to his face. And I want him to know that if he pulled that gun, you know, everything that you would think a racist white person in the big belly would be. Military haircut. And I told him the story. I almost called his name. I told him the story so 50-some years ago. And he, and everybody on that tour we were on thought this guy was a racist. They all thought he was racist because he just didn't look at black people right. He didn't talk to us right, people thought. And I remember him, blah, 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 boy, boy, he went absolutely crazy. Everybody, all the black people were looking like, we, <laughs> we expected the opposite to him to be trying to smooth it over. And this black union stood, I don't, I don't want to call his name. In the window out here at the front of the post miles an hour, like smoke coming out of him. Boy, he was puffing and puffing going over there. Big guy, big white guy. You know, they would always call him hippie type guys. You know, cool guy, though. Till this day, still a cool guy. And uh, he gets over there. And before he gets there, he messes up. He screams as he gets 20 or 30 feet from the guy. I bet you fuck up now. I bet you fuck up now if you will. I, mean, I don't. I don't even know if profanity is permitted on your podcast, brother. <laughs> but he was screaming at him, "Mess up, mess up!" And the one of white guys got up and came towards him like he was going to do something. But the other guy grabbed him kind of violently and pulled him back. And Moke went on, and got the mail, and he kept on. I bet you fuck up now if you want to, as if Moke was going to. Go to war with him. But in any case, he came back. We filed all the paperwork and the Inspector General's office and all of them said that they were going to do something. And I don't think no, nothing ever happened, but we did do the paperwork and all this stuff. But tell you what, you know, we always talk, think they are good white people and they're good bad, bad white people. So it's, it's the same as bad black people, bad, good white black people. But this day, that old guy gained a lot of respect. From everybody on that team. I mean, he gained, he gained so much respect because he was Irish boy. He was just, he was writing reports and man, we ain't gonna let him get away with this and whatever. But from there, I get a call. No, I call Constance Slaughter. I heard that there was a big lawsuit going on and I want to be a part of it. Of course, I'm still mad and angry. Constance Slaughter said, where you been weekly? We've been waiting for you to call us. We've been looking for you. Those days, man, the bucket of blood, me and some of my wild fright brothers, of course, we weren't going to let nobody run over us in the moment. I had shotguns. I had 45 automatics I walked around with. Man, we, I got in all types of stuff during that period. I snapped. I was just so mad about what had happened to Jack. said the fact that they had gotten away with it. I just wasn't going to. And the same thing at the post office. I wasn't going to let anybody do that to me anymore. So 
Constance Call asked me to be a part of the uh, lawsuit, me and some of the frats, Grant, a couple other people, witness Dolomite. So we would go to that session. And let me describe Constance, about 5'2". At that time, she looked like she was about 26, 27. Beautiful lady, beautiful attorney, highly renowned. But she could straighten you out. You know, if you look at her, you would say, oh, man, she's just so nice and petite. She's sweet. But, man, she could straighten your butt out. And I remember uh, we would have these sessions where they were working with the students, and we would be there watching them go over your story and and, uh, what happened. And and really, it wasn't doing it to get around anything. They just was aware of the many uh, tricks that the state of Mississippi lawyers, because she dealt with them all the time, used to trick people and turn the stories around to mess with others. It was this, the organization of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, which is all these great things that occurred. But in that instance before that, I was kind of lost. And But we would go to Constance's and her attorney's thing. It was well-organized. You know, they'd be going over, and this is what they're doing here weekly. This is what they're doing. If they do this, you need to be thinking. You need to be quiet. You need to kind of see where they're trying to take you. And I remember going back in a few days later telling Constance that, you know, I wanted to quit taking me off the lawsuit because I was so afraid that I was going to mess it up for everybody. But I just, it's what, I don't know. Oh, I remember her looking at me. Quit if you want to, UML. But you know what your problem is? You're just a spoiled brat. You don't know what a good knockdown, spit in your face, knock down, drag them out, choke them to the throat to you think they did fight look like. That's your problem. You never had, you had life easy all your life. And until you kind of grips with that, that sometimes in life you have to stand up. People are going to be kicking you in your butt and messing over you all your life. Boy, I never forget that. Man, 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 man. I remember being frozen in time, listening to her, and she was bouncing all over the room, man. Like I said, she was a power. Till this day, she's a powerhouse. She's a great attorney. Every time we see each other, we hook. But, uh, that got to me. And I knew then that I needed to get serious about what was going on and I needed to make certain that it wasn't my fault that uh, that the lawsuit got thrown out with some of the crazy stuff that I was doing and out in the streets and shootouts at Needle Lounge and some of the frats y'all probably heard about all that type of crazy stuff we did back in the day. But we went on to the trial. I never will forget this point that she would always make to all of us. The white powers that be in Mississippi would love to take some of y'all out. Always looking at me when she's telling that story. Looking dead my So y'all need to make certain that you're being careful out there because they would love Mississippi uh, as the evil people trying to raid Mississippi and before I get there, let me back it up just a little bit. We had what we call uh, a session with the state where they wanted to go over 
and ask all of us questions. People in the lawsuit, the derogatories, I think is what they called them at that time. And they had them at the Slender Scene. They told me what they're going to do. So we go in this way. They're going to want to talk to you about your drinking. Because prior to that of the shooting, me and four or five of my frat brothers had met at the oh, red carpet, I think it was at that time. And we had one quarter beer. <laughs> it was four or five of us. We drunk that little beer. We didn't have a lot of money that night. So I may have been two quarts of beer, but then it was five, six of us, and it didn't go very far if you know what a quart is. And so they kept asking me those questions. So why almost Winkler so and so? And the thing was on my birthday. First thing they asked, well, Mr. Winkler, well, we hate to interrupt you interrupt you on this special day. Well, what special lawyers? Constance and her team, and they're 25 lawyers. And uh, so they asked all these questions. And they asked me, basically, the ones that sent her on was the drinking before the thing. I told them, hey, I had a little bit. And I got five, six witnesses. I'll tell you that that was not a fact. Constance, to all of our surprise, said, we need some big firepower to press get on that. Oh, here they come. They're invading Mississippi. You go to our white knight lawyers. These guys, they're going to be there, but she wasn't going to be the lead person. So, trial day over 50 some years. Dolan White, Joe Neely, Sam Huff, Charles Bones, all the guys that I hung with in those days, Lee Bernard, shoot. We, we all, like about four callers of us, a bunch of other people. Spoonie, one of the guys who got shot that night was with us. And we went down there. And probably last night, I said a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. And, and I remember my time coming. Well, the day before my time, I got on court. The Highway Patrol was milling around outside in the lobby room of the courtroom house. And sure enough, I walk in there. There's Lloyd Jones that spoke so callously to us all, calling us nigger the N-word and directing everybody out there. And uh, I remember not so much being angry at him. I was staring at him because it took me a few seconds to realize, you know, who he was, so I'm staring at him. He walked up to me and said, nigga, what the hell are you looking at? And this guy's about 6'5", 300-some pounds. Those days, I'm like 130, 40 pounds. No, I'm in shape. You know, sure. And, uh, but I was small compared to this guy. He walked, nigga, what the hell are you looking at? Mark, she took that broom and broke it off <laughs> her leg. Broken again, you take a piece out, got a piece. We're going to look for them kids. Man, I'm crying, I'm mad, and uh, I don't, don't want to get too deep in that story. He's much older than me. He uh, was running home from school, and his kids jumped on him. He's light skinned. These kids, I don't know why, for whatever reason, I wanted to beat him up every day. And I remember my grandmother as a child sitting on the banister outside, and her seeing these kids jump on him, they beat him up by eight or nine kids. She jumped off that porch, <laughs> ran down there, and it's a sight for a movie. My grandmama was in shape until she died, but she was, I'm talking about she had been in her 60s and 50s, 
and she's out there fighting with these kids, these teenagers, and my brother, and it was just a sight But in any case, I can hear a voice saying, Verna, what the hell are you waiting on? Tear his goddamn ass up. Next thing I know, constant slaughter. <laughs> Her testimony against him, boy, is nothing, something for a great movie. Because she was getting on him. He was getting on her back. He was not scared. You know, what made you shoot? Why did the city police not shoot and you shoot? Who gave you the power to take over? Officer so-and-so with the Jackson Police Department was supposed to be, well, I took over because he wasn't saying nothing. Why did your men shoot and nobody shoot? Well, I guess these other guys didn't know how to shoot. Some men don't have the courage to shoot. But boy, they were going after each other back and forth. The judge would be like, Stop, stop. Hey, 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 you know. Constant man smoke pouring out of her ears. And uh, then my time came. They got him off. They separated him, got him off. He really made the state of Mississippi look bad. He really did. I mean, it was just a shame. And one of the points I want to go back to, the other highway patrolman, young highway patrolman, look, they were all trying to be like him. They were trying to walk like him and you know, cursing loud out of things. Like all the little versions, many versions of him. And, uh, but you can just see with his leadership how things got out of control. He took over from the city, a captain out there who was supposed to have been in charge. And that guy said, hey man, these guys, none of my guys shot, but these highway patrolmen shot. Sure. But, you know, these are just kids. They don't know they're better, but shouldn't we be shooting them with guns and shooting them down and blah, 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 blah. It, that guy was good. We thought, after old Abe got through with him, we thought, Mark, we're going to win. The jurors, man, some of the ladies were crying their eyes out. He had like, oh, these are little kids, man. Look at these, these kids. You know, it's their campus. Why were they there? And uh, there's a lot of things that came out that night that made it obvious that the white powers that be in the trial came out of the trial. It made it clear that the white powers that be wanted to do that. For example, they had the tank. <laughs> they had all these highway patrolmen stationed right off campus. They had all these policemen with all this gear. I didn't even talk to you about the gear and stuff they had on. They sitting there waiting for something to happen. They had probably had been there from the day of Kent State, which was 10 days earlier, to now. Just hoping that something jumps off at Jackson State so that they can come out there and shoot us all up. But in any case, we thought we were going to win. The jury came out. We lost. We lost in the state of Mississippi. Constant zips. We expected old age. Hey, guys. No, when the word came, came a couple weeks later. He's calling us. No, don't worry about it. We got it. We're going to take it on up. Make a long story short, we went to the Fifth Circuit. And uh, New Orleans, we won. We won. So we lost in Mississippi. In the years, too. If you read my book, it was times in there, may I be sent home. They dismissed our case without hearing it, based on the fact. Police officers, if you watch the film on Kent State, you're going to say, well, shoot, man, something's about to happen here because the kids were up on the police, police up on them, and they shot and they killed some of the kids, I think four, 
died at Kent State. But Jackson State, Mark, man, we're just out there having a good time. We're just kids on a campus just having fun until they intruded on, the, on us and brought that violence and evil to us. So that's probably the worst thing about the whole shooting in Jackson State. They used that opportunity, the shooting at Kent State, to come out and wreak utter havoc on us. As I mentioned earlier about Dr. Gene Young, who's Fred saying, I'm surprised we didn't get more of them from the stand. But it takes a lot of evil and hatred. We talked about the white powers that be. This is the odd thing about the evil white powers that be in Mississippi at that time. So a lot of racism going on here now in Mississippi. If you look at the current, let me put the date on here. Today is uh, uh, March 23rd, 2023, just in case somebody's watching this thing 20 years from now. They're trying to take over the city. The water crisis that's constantly in the news and uh, by Jackson, Mississippi, former governor who involved allegedly that uh, situation, but they're doing it in different ways now. All this terrible water for the last two or three years in Jackson, the cost of funding. Yeah, they tried to put it off on the mayor and the citizen council, but really goes back much, 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 much farther. But going back, black people were on the, the butt end of it. But guess what? Poor people, Mississippi at that time, senators and congressmen, and all these other people are rich. They didn't care about them, the poor white people. They didn't care. They didn't care. All they wanted was that power, greed, money, and that's what it was all about in addition to racism. This is how we're going to do it. Because Mississippi, even to this day, from that day forward, is still one of the worst states in America. In the Union. One of the worst states, always on the bottom. Why is a state so rich in resources, great people, all these great things I can name about Mississippi, always on the bottom? Mississippi got oil, got all types of stuff. They got a coastline, well, the coastline, always on the bottom, man, always on the bottom. And guess what? It's for a reason. They want, why would somebody, not care if their state, why would the evil powers that be, white powers that be in Mississippi, not be ashamed that their state is on the bottom or be controlled Mississippi? You look at the uh, uh, Congress right now. Mississippi controlled by the Republicans for many, many, many years. Many years. My life changed. My book is Standing at the Edge of Madness. I talk about going to the Moving my life like my mom did, moved us from Chicago here. But I moved to Houston. I changed my life. My book is Standing at the Edge of Madness. I'd have started it off with the shooting. I went from telling it about my life just prior to the shooting, and I went immediately into the shooting. I think that hardcore, because if you, if you, it's, 
you know, if you read through it, you're going to say, golly, this guy's just breaking it down little by little what happened, second by second, minute by minute about what happened in the shooting. Maybe I should have put that further back and softened the front of the book. But people like it. It's been out there for years. It's done very well for many years. This one is Fear, No Evil. Stories my grandparents told me. It's always been a book that people, for whatever reason, for me, over, been out there 20 something years, people are still buying it like crazy. So, get a chance to check it out, read it, and drop a note at me at SWA LOS. I appreciate this opportunity that's out there like this. There are a lot of other subjects highly regarded by the black community. Thank you for all you do. Well, let me say this. I, I I really want to to thank you because um as important as the shootings that happened in May of nineteen seventy at Jackson State, the, the, the massacre, the assassination of 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 um Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green, as important as as that is to me as a uh, JSU alumni and now JSU parent, uh, as a black man, as a person who that type of history, um, this type of history is important to our show. I really want to, to thank you for being on because uh, I didn't really get this until I read your book. And I know at first you were reluctant to do the show, but when I read your book, um, standing at the edge of madness, I finally got it. For you, this is not just detached history. You lived it. Um, the way you write in the book is very passionate and it's unbounded. Like I, I felt it all and I understand how even going through any of this can have a certain amount of trauma and people not getting it right can have a lot, a lot of probably uh, resentment or anger or what have you. So I appreciate you, you, you doing that. And, and thank you for being on. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlay in all blue remember to like the show leave a review and share it it helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us if you have questions comments or show ideas please email us at mark at the parlay in all blue.com finally remember to follow us on social media and thanks be well and we out